Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast, located in Seattle, Washington. As a church, we are a community striving to be faithfully present to God, self, and others. We hope this is an encouragement to you in your life, no matter where you are. Thanks for joining us. We're going to be reading from Mark 4, uh, 21 through 25. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use it, sorry, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. All right. Hey, it's good to be with all of you today. So glad you're here. Uh, a special welcome to our friends uh, from Icon. Pastor Josh, if you'd raise your hand real quick. Wearing his Mariner's cap, yeah. Um, big ups. Hey, so this weekend we had our very first marriage conference and we were able to partner with our friends from Icon Church and it was really, really special for just a ton of reasons. Uh, today, Icon is celebrating their third birthday, which is really cool. Yeah, happy birthday. Really cool. Um, you're like, well, why, why are they here? <laughs> well, they had planned on being outside, uh, bouncy houses, throwing a party today, and with the smoke that was coming in, and families were just trying to, you know, not hang out in the smoke. Uh, we were like, well, okay. Come hang with us. And they're, so anyway, they're, they're hanging with us today, which is really nice. That you can take a breather on your birthday. And so uh, we honor you, your team, your church family. Just we, we really honor you. And thank you for spending your morning with us. And so we take that very seriously. Love you. Thank you. Um, Oh, gosh, it's so good to see so many faces, like, coming back, you know, it's summer. And then uh, now all of a sudden it's, it's smoky. <laughs> Kind of back to school, kind of not. Um, it's so good just to be together this morning with you. Um, it is a, it's a full season, uh, but it's nice to be stepping back. For those of you that are new here, the vision of our church is very simple. Redemption Church is responding to God and the gospel through striving to remain faithfully present to God, to ourselves, and to each other. The mission of our church is a simple response. So before we jump into the preaching the gospel, I'd like to pray for just a moment and then, and then move in. Let's do that. Uh, Father, it is in the wonderful name of Jesus that we have gathered here today. Thank you that we belong to you because of your work, Jesus, and your indwelling Holy Spirit poured out on the church and churches and subsequently sent into the world. It is our prayer today that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are willing and able to obey and respond eager 
to all that you have for us. Help me proclaim the gospel clearly and faithfully. And for your name's sake, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So we're journeying through the gospel of Mark. Uh, and so last week, if you remember, we covered the, the famous parable of the four soils in which Jesus explains where the seed of the word of God lands on various soils. And however that, whatever kind of soil that seed lands on determines whether or not the seeds take root and whether they sprout and what kind of growth is yielding. 30, 60, 100 fold. You've heard this parable. And then there's that tricky quotation from the prophet Isaiah where Jesus throws it in, where they ask, why are you talking in parables? And Jesus responds, quoting Isaiah chapter 6, so that those on the outside will not understand. They will hear but not perceive, lest their hearts would be softened and they would turn and be forgiven. You're like, well, that's a tricky verse. <laughs> but it's tricky because Jesus is, we're trying to identify who is Jesus trying to keep on the outside. And the outsiders that Jesus has in mind are those that you've already read about in Mark chapter 2 and 3. The people who have already plotted to put Jesus to death. The scribes, the Pharisees, these religious parties who are plotting to put Jesus to death. Not because of any sin that he's committed, but because of their hearts have grown so hard that they, they want Jesus put to death for working on the Sabbath, i.e. healing someone on a Saturday. And so Jesus speaks in parables to keep those parties on that track. It's like, why does he not explain himself to them and go, guys, 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 you've, you've got it all wrong. Because Jesus, in cooperation with the Father from before time began, set in motion this agenda he will not end up on his cross on Good Friday by happenstance. He will not just happen to fall into the hands of an angry mob. Jesus is determined that he will go to his cross. I lay down my life and I take it up again. When Jesus is standing before Pilate and Pilate says, answer me, don't you know I have the authority to hand you over and have you crucified? Jesus responds with what? You actually have no authority over me. The only authority you do have is from my father, i.e., I'm not going to stop the show. I'm actually in charge of the whole thing. So Jesus keeps the scribes on the outside because he is going to go to his cross, not as a suicide, but as a savior. And so, if you look down through the rest of these parables in verses 26 and, and 30, you'll see these words, and he said, and he said. And this is Mark's way of giving us a little introduction to when, like, it's Mark's way of saying he's remembering, or Peter's dictating to Mark, rather. He's remembering different parables that seem to fit well in this section of Scripture. So he said this on one day, and he said this, and he said this, and he said this. He may not actually be saying all these parables all at the same moment. And the synoptic gospels reserve the right to move some things around. That is, the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they, uh, the word synoptic means to, to see together. So 
It's like if we were all surrounding something here this morning and all looking at it from different angles. That's the idea, to see together. Matthew, Mark, and Luke do that. Mark wrote his gospel first in the mid-50s. Matthew wrote his gospel around A.D. 70. Luke was shortly thereafter, and they write to different audiences. And they're all writing to reveal that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the King of Israel, that Jesus is the Savior of the world, that Jesus is the one who will resurrect those in the end, and so on. They're all writing to accomplish the message of the gospel, but they're going to take the creative liberty to move some things around from time to time in their gospel in order to accomplish their purposes. Now, you know, what about John? I thought there was a fourth one. Well, John is not a synoptic gospel. He's like the wild cousin. And you're kind of like, yeah, he's writing a gospel, all right. But if you read John compared to the others, you go, wow, uh, John has no parables, And the whole gospel of John is based on the last week of Jesus' life. That's it. (laughs) Wow, very different. So that's why John's a little different than the other other three. In Matthew and Luke, they have this recording that Jesus begins with uh, about is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand. And in Matthew's gospel, it's in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's not a question. Jesus just says, Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Luke says something similar. Luke says, no one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. But Mark records Jesus saying something similar, but asking a rhetorical question. Do you bring a lamp in to put it under a bowl or under a bed? Why frame it as a question? For Rome, remember, Mark is writing to persecuted Christians in Rome. Why ask the question than make the statement directly? Because the Roman Christians were under such severe persecution to compromise obedience and loyalty and allegiance to Jesus and then knock Jesus down one peg and put him on the pantheon with all the other gods, the question is stronger for that congregation to consider. Do you bring a lamp in to put it under a bowl? Like, what did you sign up for exactly? So, Matthew and Luke, they speak of the lamp. If you remember back in like ninth grade English, I guess it was. They speak of, of, of a lamp as an object, Whereas in the question of Jesus in Mark's gospel, the lamp is a subject. So here's how it, we can pull these up real quick. Here's how it reads. Do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or under a bed? But literally, it reads this way, and it was written in Greek. This is how it literally reads. Does the lamp come in order that it might be placed under the bowl or under a bed? Does the lamp come in? Like, Alex, this is seriously boring. Why are you doing this? Here's why. This matters. This little, the, like this indefinite article, does the lamp, do you see what Jesus is doing? This is his way of saying, I'm the light of the world. Does the lamp come Oh, this, the lamp isn't brought in. I'm not handled. Somebody didn't just grab Jesus out of heaven and drag him into earth. 
does the lamp come? He comes into the earth of his own initiative, which would start tipping our hat toward things like grace, that we didn't grab God or act good enough for God to come down, but rather the lamp came of his own initiative. Does the lamp come? Does the lamp? And Jews would have heard this and known that this is more than, this is, they would have caught this immediately. The way the Old Testament reads, uh, I have a, uh, a slide two. Here you go. Look at these verses or these ideas. When Jews hear the word lamp, they think God. They think Messiah. They think Torah. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. Messiah, yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah, yet for the sake of David his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. Torah, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The Jews would have heard Jesus hear this question, does the lamp come in? And they start going, oh my gosh, he is the fulfillment of the law. They would hear the question, does the lamp come in and go, this is the Davidic king. Does the lamp come in? They would think, this is his claim to be Yahweh God. And some go, there's no way they concluded that. That's exactly what they concluded, which is why Jesus was brought up under criminal charges for blasphemy. This man makes himself one with God. So when you see Jesus asking the question, does the lamp come in? This is not a statement about, hey, I'm kind of an enlightened wisdom sage. He's claiming something far beyond being an average humanitarian or philanthropist. Did you know Jesus never once attempted to be like God? He never attempted it. He was God. You and I, we try to be godly through the Holy Spirit and all the rest. We try to become more like God. Jesus never attempted to be like God. He was God. That's why he could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Like everything I do is exactly like the Father. Exactly. So how does Jesus respond to someone caught in the worst moment? Well, that tells you how God feels. That shows you how God acts. How does Jesus find people that are in power, that are keeping people down? How does Jesus speak to those people? That's how God feels. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's the lamp. Jesus is the creator of heaven and earth. John chapter one, Philippians chapter two, Colossians chapter one, Hebrews chapter one. All of these passages repeatedly say Jesus himself is involved in creation. Jesus is God. Jesus is the one who Moses, David, Isaiah, and all the prophets were pointing toward. Jesus is the culmination of the history of the world and the history of God himself. Those aren't the same thing, you know. Someone was eternal. We just got here. So there's two histories, but they're all his. So because Jesus died and Jesus resurrected from the grave, he stands at the pinnacle of history and demands a response. Like, a person cannot remain indifferent to Jesus. If you understand what we're talking about, you cannot remain indifferent to who Jesus really is. 
Good teachers come and go. But what will you do with the one who was raised from the dead? What will you do with the lamp? C.S. Lewis said it this way in his book, God in the Dock. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him. You can kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing, patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. <laughs> He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Like, it's great to admire Jesus as a teacher, but that was not his goal. There's a lot of good teachers. That was not his aim. Also, was he a good teacher? I mean, come on. Like, Alex, whoa, hold on, dude. Seriously, who says things like, sell all your stuff, give it to the poor, and come follow me, and you can have eternal life? Is that a good teacher? You want to follow that teacher? Uh, no. You've heard it said not to commit adultery. I say don't lust in your heart. Do you like that teaching? You like that? That's cool, huh? It's great. No, we like teachings that say like, well, here's how NFTs work and how to get one. <laughs> you know, we like to find teaching that helps us get ahead in life. Like calling him a good teacher he didn't leave that open to us. And sure, he was a good teacher, but there was far, far, infinitely more to who he is in his character and what he came to accomplish. So this is why we proclaim Jesus and Jesus exclusively for salvation. There is no other way, road, path, or journey that reconciles men and women and boys and girls to God. Jesus is the lamp. And we're going to stand here. He made it that clear. So, and because Jesus is the lamp, the lamp brings light. He does not allow his people to sit in darkness. He does not shame us, but he does gently and faithfully, consistently deliver us out of evil. And so as you think about the darkness of our own city, <laughs> of our own world, Every direction you look, you do see sin, rebellion, brokenness, corruption, darkness. You see it. You feel it. And yet, as we turn our eyes back to Jesus, we see things for how they truly are and how they one day will be. The human soul glows in the light of who Jesus is. When was the last time you paused for your own soul to grow? And I don't mean carve out time to read Christian literature. Please don't hear me saying that. <laughs> as good as that stuff can be. And I don't mean like carve out time to listen to Christian songs. I mean to carve out space in a way in which you are your real self before him 
No fig leaves, no posturing, no pretending, no these and thou arts or rattling off whatever you think he might want to hear today. But to set your soul before him and say, if you don't move in my life, I'll wither. That's what your soul was made for. And thank God the invitation is always standing open. For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest. And nothing kept secret except to come to the light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. I remember Jesus had said he was keeping his identity hidden and secret from the scribes. But this wasn't going to stay the case forever. The secret, the secret of Good Friday, the secret would become suddenly manifest Easter Sunday. The secret of the king of the kingdom would all of a sudden become crystal clear to Rome, to everyone, not just the huddled disciples in a, in a room to the side, but to the world. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Verse 24, and he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. Pay attention. Literally, it says, see what you hear. When Jesus says, pay attention, he says, see what you hear. See it. He's saying, don't sleep through what I'm saying. If you miss it, you'll miss everything. And I don't mean that you're going to miss out on one emotional, mystical experience with God. He's saying, if you miss it, you'll miss your life. Which is a fairly offensive thing to say. What do you mean, Jesus? How will I miss my life? How is the purpose of my life contingent upon seeing you? I see lots of faces, and my life is not contingent upon all of those faces. And Jesus' response is because I'm the one that gives shape, meaning, purpose, Focus and reason to all that you are. You are made by me and for me. You are in the mind of God from eternity past. You were made for more than money. You were made for more than sex. You were made for more than just acquiring more square footage. You were made for more than attempting to just try to be a nice person. You're made for more than work. You were made for me. Pay attention. Pinch yourself. Pour a cup of coffee. 
Drink the whole pot if you have to. Whatever you do, pay attention. Whatever you do, your soul cannot afford to tune Jesus out the way we tune out endless scrolling on our phone. Pay attention. Those two words, pay attention, for somebody with ADD, (laughs) have become utterly invaluable to me over the last, I guess, about seven years. It was in 2015 uh, that I was given my first book by my favorite author. I had read more books, trust me, before 2015, but Frederick Buechner, I was standing in uh, my Papa Walt's kitchen and his wife, Sharon Sellers, she said, you know who you, I really think you should read is a guy named Frederick Buechner. And she began to tell me about him. And she handed me a devotional by him. And it, uh, it had, it's had a profound impact on me. And Buechner, he was a strange figure. Um, he was a man of kind of seriousness that bordered on the edge and, uh, of like gloom and despair. Um, but, and there was a heaviness about him, but he was a man of real faith. He was really present. Uh, he died last month at the age of 96 in his sleep. And I was in the Santa Fe airport with my friends when the text messages started rolling in. First, it was my friend Nick in Orange County. Um, and then my buddy Jesse over at the terminal and my friend Arnaldo in Sydney. And then just from all over the world, my phone just started blowing up going, Alex, we're so sorry, your hero died. I'm sitting there with my friends Don and Mikey, and they're like, who's Frederick Buechner? What is that guy? And I was like sitting there just choked up at the airport, and they're like, was he like a family member? Like, no. But authors can get into your soul in a way that, oh my gosh, you can know them better than, you know, oh man. And so Don and Mikey, they're like, well, tell us what about him. What did what, what, what'd you learn from him over the last several years? And it's this invitation to pay attention. to pay attention to the story of my own life, to pay attention to the story of the world out there. And especially to pay attention to the people that make up my life, my life. Like your life is only as rich as the people that make your life your life. You know, to pay attention. In 1983, Buechner wrote a book entitled Now and Then. And uh, here's, here's how he sums up everything, basically. If I were called upon to state in a few words the essence of everything that I was trying to say, both as a novelist and a preacher. He won the Pulitzer Prize, by the way, on his first book. Like, wow. If I were trying to say 
through all my preaching and writing, here's what I was trying to say. It would be something like this. Listen to your life. See it for the fathomless mystery that it is. In the boredom and pain of it, no less than in the excitement and gladness, touch and taste, smell your way to the holy and hidden heart of it. Because in the last analysis, all moments are key moments and life itself is grace. <laughs> That's what he wanted to say to the world was pay attention. And paying attention is something that any of us can do. At the same time, paying attention is the bravest thing you'll ever do. If you don't think that's true, well, it makes sense why the world is so distracted. Look around. Is anyone paying attention? To pay attention means to give yourself completely to the present moment and resist the temptation to fill it with abstractions and distractions. To be present is not the same thing as trying. Trying has to do with exerting effort to accomplish something. But being present is infinitely harder because in being present, you're trusting that what God has done and who God is in this moment is enough. In being present, you're trusting that in this moment, you are enough. To be present means that the moment as pregnant or as barren as it is, is enough. This kind of calling is tough for so many of us because we would rather just get to work. And if you're uniquely religious, you'll get to work with going into all the world and making disciples at the negation of your own soul and your own story. You've got to go into your own story first before you go into the world. St. Augustine said it. He said, men will travel the world to behold marvels. They'll go to the Alps. They'll stare over vast oceans. Men will stare into the stars. Men will do whatever it takes to take all of it is, and yet they will pass over the mystery of their own self. So to pay attention is hard work. And in paying attention, you've got to be very gentle, especially with yourself, because your story is your story. And fortunately, the tenderness of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit and the faithful few around you are there to strengthen you so that you can do that kind of hard work of paying attention. And then go into the world. <laughs> with the measure you use, It'll be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. Okay, this is a tricky one, but stay with me. What does Jesus mean? <laughs> with the measure you use, it will be measured to you and even more. What is this? What's the substance? Wheat, grain, flour, what is it? And the answer is not an it. The answer is a who. Remember, Jesus has been talking about the secret of the kingdom. 
and that he has hidden his identity from the outsiders, but he's revealing himself as the king of the kingdom to his people. And so Jesus is saying, with whatever measuring cup you use in relation to me, that is exactly what I will fill. You catch that? God gives himself in direct proportion to your desire for him. God is not stingy with his presence. We just don't know what we're asking for. So one way to think about it would to picture God as Niagara Falls. So if you stand before Niagara Falls with a thimble, that's what will be measured back. If you stand before Niagara Falls with a half cup from your kitchen, that's what will be measured back. If you stand before Niagara Falls and go, wait, I need to go get like a five-gallon bucket, (laughs) that's what will be measured back. Or you can just go get an excavator and dig out a giant crater and go, God, fill my life. Fill my life with the measure that I use. That's what it will be measured back to me. So my job is to spend the rest of my life digging and making room and making space so that God himself will fill my average, ordinary life. And this is an invitation. Jesus is not talking to mystics in caves and theologians from the Middle Ages only. He's talking to farmers. He's talking to you. With whatever measure you use, that's what will be measured back to you. And so this is why in the under, you hear that and go, okay, so this is why we do our disciplines as followers of Jesus, that we make worship on Sundays like an actual priority because I'm, in ex, I'm excavating, I'm digging out, I'm making space for God to work in my life. This is why we fast, so that we carve out space for God to work. This is why we pray, this is why we do our community groups, this is why we confess our sin, this is why we do all the normal Basic disciplines of the faith is because we're responding to the reality that God says, as much as you want of me, I'll give it to you and even more. So you get to spend your whole life digging out and making space so that he will measure back even more of who he is in our lives. Wow, you must be like a very good person to do that. No, you just have to see him. (laughs) He's the good one. Ours is just the response to that reality. Does that make sense? Okay. Here's the temptation. When life gets hard, when people betray us, when the church fails us, when something moves into our lives that's beyond our control, we tend to, or at least we face the temptation to take the cup from under the waterfall that God graciously filled and we hold the cup and we begin to deconstruct it and challenge it 
and criticize it, question it. We used to be at church or a prayer meeting or worship gatherings or whatever every chance we could get. But now, since that thing happened, we just go like once a month. And then we wonder why we no longer see like the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. In the South, they would say, oh, the pastor just went from, like, preaching to meddling. <laughs> and I am on purpose because it's my job. Like, when we quit reading our Bible and then we wonder why we lack clarity, power, precision, or any kind of direction in our lives. It's not because God hasn't spent the ages pinning his very words to paper. When we stop repenting and just start making excuses and then wonder why all of our relationships like feel strained, those are the temptations. But Jesus didn't provide a caveat to the times of life in which he'll measure back his presence. That you don't have to feel great about everything in this world for there to be a connection with God that the waterfall still keeps pouring regardless of what went on over here, that you can consistently keep making space for him to work. And so I want to remind you that in your wounded state, that God is not withholding himself and that the wound and the difficulties that you are enduring does not turn off the faithfulness of Almighty God to you. God's character is not contingent upon your circumstance. God's presence is always with you to the end of the age. And you have to preach that to your soul on Monday. For to the one who has, last verse, more will be given. And the one who has not, even what he has, will be taken away. This is Jesus speaking first and foremost to those scribes who've caught a glimpse of him. Even what they have seen will be taken. Jesus is speaking to anyone who is content to take a glimpse at him but not follow him. These are those who will give Jesus a bit of a hearing but will not bow down to him as Lord and King in Christ. Thus, even the tiniest bit of light will go out. That's what Jesus says. So the point of a parable is to call you to think, to do inventory. What is your relation to the lamp? Are you paying attention to what you've heard? Are you present? Where do you need to grow? 
Do you need to get involved somehow in the life of the church? What do you need to do? What tools do you need to start carving out space for him to measure his presence back? What does that look like? If you've got ideas, connect with us today. We'll take care of you. We can help plug into all kinds of things. That's what the body does. If you're not a follower of Jesus today, I'm inviting you to give your life to him. Your soul was made by him and for him. If you've been weary or wayward in your faith, hear this. Nothing, height or depth, angels or demons, plagues, swords, famine, or smoke outside can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He has not budged, and he will not change. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good news of the gospel. We ask that you would help us stay grounded and centered. We ask that you would give us the strength and the courage and the bravery to just be present and to show up to the lamp. Jesus, illuminate us. Illuminate within us what we need to repent of and forsake and illuminate us as your lights in our city that we might point all that we do back to you. Thank you for the forgiveness of sin. Thank you for dying and rising from the grave for us. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Church. We pray these things in your good name. Amen.